How about we just start by talking for a second, okay? Okay? All right. Here's the thing about sermons. They come every week. Um, doesn't really matter what kind of week it's been. You could have had an excellent week where everything is going great and it's full of the Spirit of God and the glory of the Lord and you are just pumped to come and pour all of that out at the altar of God as a fragrant offering. You have some weeks where it's a struggle. You have things that don't go as planned. You hit rough spots. You barely make it to the altar to pour out your very paltry offering. Can I tell you a secret? Regardless of the week, when you're a preacher, you head to bed that Sunday night. And as you go to bed, there's always this little tickle in the back of your head. The sermon. The sermon. There's a sermon coming next week. That's the reality. There's a sermon that must come. I need you to realize the sermon is not coming from a week of fullness. It's coming from a week of barrenness. Um, it's a week where I realize that I am just tired of human tragedy. I am tired and exhausted by our capacity for violence. I am exhausted by our capacity for hate. I am exhausted by our capacity for finger pointing and grandstanding on issues in the aftermath. Um, it is a week where I realize that I am tired of loss. I am tired of people losing people they love. I am tired of losing people that I love. I am tired of the fact that creation breaks down. I am tired of headlines about losing another formative music artist or actor. I'm tired of ministry this week. Um, the balance that I have between the inflow of God into my life and the outflow of ministry is a little off right now and I need to find it again. My, my obligations are overtaking my relationships and I feel disconnected from the people that I love here. Um, frankly, it felt like a week to just go sit somewhere and put Tom Petty on repeat and not have any answers. Okay? And maybe that is more than you want to know. That's okay. You know, especially if it's your first week here as your visitor. And you're like, what kind of church did I just walk into? What kind of preacher is this? I, well, this is what kind of preacher this is. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I just crossed a line of vulnerability that's uncomfortable. Though I think it's vitally important to the life of a congregation that you realize that I have the same capacity to feel the way that you do. That did not get magically removed from me in Bible college somewhere. There's not a class that you take where when you come out of that, it has been removed from your existence. And you can just bring the word no matter what's going on. Okay? It doesn't work that way. Um, you know? I don't know. Maybe you think I am inappropriately using the pulpit and I should just get on with preaching. So, okay, I will. But see, the word of God still needs to be proclaimed, regardless of my week, regardless of your week. And so here's the gospel that came this week. Here's the gospel that came out of the barrenness, something that I needed to be reminded of 
in my emptiness, something that I need in order to be able to call hope and something I need to hang on to. And that is simply this. Heaven is not my home. Now, I know I didn't hear that right, you just said. That's not how the song goes. I I got the song growing up. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel it home in this world anymore. Don't misunderstand me. The world as it is is not our home. It's not supposed to be. Okay? It's never going to be. Um, like I talked about a couple of weeks ago, the reality of the resurrection means that we live in the tension of living in two places at once. We have citizenship in a heavenly kingdom and we have residency in an earthly one. But we are not heading somewhere else than here. I'm not escaping this world either now or later. And believe me, there are weeks like this where I wish that I could. I wish that we could fly away and leave it all behind and head to a home somewhere up beyond the blue. The problem is is that the Bible makes it pretty clear that that's not where this is all heading. That's not where our destination is. In fact, I worry about the fact that the idea of leaving earth is so accepted among Christians that this idea that heaven is somewhere else far off and far away, it's kind of created this escapist theology in followers of Jesus that's crippling us. It's making our witness ineffective. It's making our lives ineffective as representatives of the gospel of Jesus. We flee from our weeks to escape into Sunday morning rather than letting the grace that we experience here in worship and being in fellowship break down the barriers into our Monday through Saturday. This should be a refuge, but it shouldn't be a refuge to hide. It should be a refuge that empowers us to go, right? We flee from our desires. We flee from our areas of weakness, trying to cover them up with pious activity rather than letting the Spirit engage and redeem them. Should we run to God, our refuge, in times of weakness? Absolutely. But not to mask ourselves with pious activity, but to allow Him to be our God in our weakness. We try to escape the world. We try to escape its broken systems and its broken people and its broken realities that are full of pain. We forget that Jesus didn't rise and ascend to create some disconnected, spiritualized existence for us. No. Jesus went to the cross and to the grave and busted out of the grave and ascended to the throne to initiate the divine plan to reclaim and redeem and restore creation through the power of his spirit working through his disciples as you and me. Many times I fear that we think the plan has become for us to just hang on and live our lives in whatever fashion we choose as long as we follow the rules, whatever those are, and wait for the flaming chariot to come and whisk us away from here someday. When I leave, I want to go out like Elijah. The thing is, Jesus talks about a kingdom that's overtaking the earth, not 
abandoning the earth. A life that's transforming our existence, not dividing it into hanging on now and hoping to run away later. And a home that's going to be here, not somewhere beyond the blue. And church, we've got to realize this is a hope, not a fear. This is a hope, not a letdown. That my lamenting over the way things are is not in vain. I'm going to preach some lament, okay? It's, it's Thanksgiving. Maybe you think it's a really, really weird time to preach lament, okay? But I'm going to preach lament because personally, communally, and globally, folks, things are not all right. But here's the thing. I can preach that lament and it's not in vain because I'm not stuck here and can't leave. God is still cultivating his redemption and creation. So it's okay for me to say that it's not all right. The story is what it is and it may not be okay right now. It may be bad right now. And for all I know, it may get worse but I know that it ends up better. I know that it finishes better. And somehow, crazily, by the grace of God, I'm actually a part of it getting better. Our reading out of 1 Corinthians 15, we looked at it last week, we're looking at it again this week. It compares our earthly bodies and our lives to seeds sown in the ground and cultivated there, being nurtured into the fullness of what they're intended to be. And the bodily resurrection necessitates death, says Paul. And that's not just a one-time thing that happens at the end of life. It's something that happens throughout life. In his follow-up letter to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, he elaborates on it this way. We always carry around in our bodies, the death of Christ, so that in us, the life of Christ will be revealed just that much more. If because of Jesus, the resurrection is happening now, not someday. If he's the first fruits, which means that it's happening now, not later. If we have the spirit that's transforming us now, not later, and God is raising our whole beings into the image of Christ, then we need to understand that death and decay and loss and pain and suffering and the like, that's part of the game. Because those are the things that are the precursors to life and renewal and redemption and healing and God's peace of wholeness, his shalom for us. Paul reminds us that we're moving in a direction. The body we have the life we have now, not detached from the body and the life in eternity. It's intricately connected to it. But it's also a body and life that is dying and being raised, moving from death to life in Jesus. We read in verses 42 through 44 of chapter 15, so it will be 
with the resurrection from the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it gets raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. So I think Paul sees a root connection between everything that he's written about to the Corinthian church so far up into this point. Whether it's the divisions that they have over leadership, or their misunderstandings about sexuality, or their hang-ups about basic things like eating and drinking, or their elevation of certain spiritual gifts, or even their disunity around the communion table. I think it all comes back to one prominent point. The reason a lot of this is happening is they don't understand where all this life is heading. They think this life is about escaping the world for the spiritual, but it's not. It's about letting the resurrected life overtake us in the world we live in. And I think we need to hear the gospel in this. God is raising us to life in Christ Jesus right now. And raising us in many ways. He's putting to death the perishable in us and he is raising up the imperishable. And that's both a hope and it's a challenge because church, I know there are perishable things that you are pursuing in your work right now. There are perishable things that are coloring your relationships. And you need to realize that God is all about frustrating and reorienting those things into the imperishable. And you can either go with that or you can push against it. But that's where he's going. You're spending time on recreation that is perishable. It doesn't actually bring life. Not because of what you are doing or not doing. Not saying certain activities are and aren't. I mean it's perishable because you're pursuing it as an escape from life rather than engaging the Spirit of God to create life in whatever you're doing, to actually turn your recreation into recreation. The resurrection either works for us or against us in our purposes in life, depending on whether we're trying to drive the bus or whether we're letting the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, direct our steps. And we need to know that. We need to know that. If we keep hanging on to the imperishable, we're working against God's purposes and what he's trying to raise us into. God is also raising us from a state of dishonor to a state of glory. The real point of the fall of humanity, many say, is not that humanity broke the rules. It's that we got out of order. Our glory was supposed to be in our king, in our value that he placed on us. Our position as stewards of creation was supposed to be the thing that we would glory in and find our value and purpose in. But when we sought our own glory rather than our creator's glory, we moved into a state of dishonor. We moved into a state of shame. We got out of order. We didn't have right relationship with God anymore. Didn't have right relationship with creation anymore. Don't have right relationship with each other anymore. It's not how we were designed. And the results of that kind of shame are almost always fear or pride. You don't have to look really far to see how that's being played out in our world. We live in a world that is plagued by shame, plagued by fear, plagued by pride, in a world where everyone is trying to be their own king and dispose of the true king. And church, I want you to hear the good news in this. Christ is actively, lovingly, tearing down the kingdoms in our lives and our world. Those kingdoms of dishonor 
in order to bring his glory back into the world. And this is not something that we should be escapist or quiet about. The resurrected life is a life where our prayers are married to action. Where we not only disown our own false kingdoms, but we are speaking and working and writing and creating and voting and spending and acting in a host of other ways that disown the false kingdoms around us and let God's kingdom be built up through us and in us. I never see Jesus or any other voice in the New Testament call us to a discipleship that is characterized by isolated worship and ambivalent or hidden living. It's not in there. You can't find it. If you do find it, I tell you that you're reading in a way that goes against the entire thrust of the scriptures. A bodily resurrection that means what we do with our bodies and our lives and our days right now matters more, not less. As Christ followers, we're not leaving all this behind. We're actually partaking and participating in the reordering of all this from dishonor to glory, just as God intended us to in the garden so long ago. This is what it means to evangelize. This is what it means to witness that we reclaim our role as caretakers again because we have a message that brings people from death to life again, from dishonor to glory. And if you're like me, there are a lot of times you feel way inadequate to that task. We do. We're busy. We're harried. We're compromised. We're empty. And yet the word of God proclaims this morning that you and I are being raised from what is sown in weakness into power. There's always this debate on how much a person can change. We were having this debate in the office this week, actually. Most say that over our lifetime, the capacity for our behavior change is only about 10% of our total behavior. I don't even know how you come up with that percentage. Maybe it's just one of those awesome statistics that you throw out. I don't know. But here's the thing. That seems awfully low for how much I need to change in order to be like Jesus. Because I'll just be real with you, I am not 90% there and just need to, you know, go the extra 10%. And if I believe the statistics, I never will be. Now, we can do a lot of things with that. Some of us will be realists about it. Some of us will be pessimists about it. Some of us will be optimists and idealists about it. But here's the thing. I think the word of God is calling us to be resurrectionists about it. See, the Holy Spirit that's planted in you and I is greater than our lack of capacity to change. I believe that. I hope you do. I cannot, I must not, be trapped by the idea that I'm going to stay this way until I die. Otherwise, what's the point of living? What's the point of living for Christ if I'm just going to stay this way? And I cannot, must not then, make excuses for staying the way that I am. That option's no longer viable for us if we are being raised from weakness to power by the Spirit of Jesus. But even more, this means that our weakness is just as infused with the resurrection of Jesus as our areas of strength. Hear that. 
Your weakness is just as open for God to use as your strength. And and see, this is the most crazy, most hope-filled idea of grace that I know right now, is that today, standing in front of you this morning, I am not required to preach a sermon by God in spite of my emptiness today. You know what he did? He invited me out of my emptiness to preach a sermon. some really great grace it's all his glory anyway and I'm just supposed to point to him and say behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and that's your invitation too I mean sure there are tons of reasons why you should say no to that I'm sure not the least of which is being scared to death or feeling inadequate. You're too busy, you got kids, you don't know how, you're not gifted enough, you haven't been trained enough. Let's just cut through all that for a second, okay? Because I never met one person in Scripture who encountered God's mission when they were qualified enough. And I never met one person in Scripture who encountered God's mission at a time when it was right or convenient or easy for them. It does not work that way. It never has, never will. They've all had reasons to say no. Yet the resurrection was compelling enough for them to say yes. Resurrected life comes calling in our weak areas and invites us to be infused with its power. It leaves us no room to safely ignore or excuse or decline the invitation. And yet even if we do decline it, by grace, Jesus comes calling again, day after day after day, arms outstretched, asking us if we would like to take hold of the abundant life with him. Because church, the abundant life is the spiritual life. It is the word made flesh, dwelling among us, dwelling in us, changing us and the world that we live in. Paul says our bodies are sown as natural ones, but raised as spiritual ones. And if anything, I need to tell you that the meaning of this is the opposite of what we might naturally think. It is not that we are discarding our flesh for a disembodied resurrection. That's not what it means when the body is so natural and raised spiritual. It's the realization that while there is no divine division between the material and the spiritual, there is a human one. We are disconnected from God's reality. We don't see how what we do matters in the eternal scheme of things. We don't see how studying for that test or working on that case file or buying these groceries or handling that discipline issue with our kids or choosing what we are or aren't going to watch on Netflix tonight or how we're going to invest or handle the money that has been given to us or how we pursue romance or intimacy or the decisions we make with our body or what we do with our vacation time or our Tuesday nights. We don't see how any of that connects with our salvation or the kingdom of God. That's the natural state we live in. We try sometimes, but if you think about naturally, that's where we live. 
is we don't see how any of that matters. That spiritual stuff is over here. My Tuesday night is over here. That spiritual stuff is over there, and the choices that I make are over here. And yet Jesus existed. He lived a life where all of that, from life's first cry in the Bethlehem manger to that last shuddering gasp of it is accomplished, hanging from the Golgotha tree, everything in between those things, all those things that we know about in Scripture, and all the parts that we don't of his day-to-day life, growing up, living life, all of it was a spiritual life. All of it was this perfect melding of the material and the spiritual. We can't even begin to, dis- to explain or describe how Jesus was fully God and fully human, but I think it starts that realizing for Jesus, it was all resurrected life. Even before he was raised on the third day, asking for a drink of water from a well, traveling through a graveyard, making breakfast, paying his taxes, catching fish, walking down a road. Any of these places and so many more were ripe for the presence of the Holy Spirit to change things. Everything was possible for the bringer of eternal life to move through him as God's agent in his life and in his death. And to be raised in the spiritual body is for us to be raised in the image of Jesus, the image of a body and a life with no division anymore between the physical and the spiritual, where they are seamlessly connected. In the same way Jesus was fully human and fully God, so we are being raised fully human, fully with the image of God. That's not something far off and small and far away. It is exceptionally loud and extremely close to our consciousness every day if we're willing to look for it. And that is our home. That is where heaven's going to be, is the place where there is no separation anymore, forever. That prayer we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here the way it is there because there's coming here see it's already at hand it's already here and you and I are being invited into it so I don't know maybe you're full this week maybe you're empty either way I want you to listen to the tickle in the back of your brain sermon Here's the thing. There's a sermon to write this week. And I'm not the only one writing it. You are too. Whether you know it or not, you've been chosen to write. And whether you're writing out of your own capacity or or out of the capacity of the author of life, you're writing a sermon this week. It is the sermon of the good news of Jesus Christ alive in you. It is a sermon of dead things coming to life again in you. Your life, my life, our lives. We get to bear witness and watch death 
being swallowed up in life and we get to proclaim this week as a foretaste of when it, we will proclaim it forever. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Lord bless you.